when television is bad, nothing is worse. I invite each of you to sit down in front of your own television set when your station goes on the air. Keep your eyes glued to that set until the station signs off. I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. You will see a procession of game shows, formula comedies about totally unbelievable families, blood and thunder, mayhem, violence, sadism, murder, Western bad men, Western good men, private eyes, gangsters, more violence and cartoons, and endlessly commercials, many screaming, cajoling, and offending, and most of all, boredom. True, you'll see a few things you will enjoy, but they will be very, very few. And if you think I exaggerate, I only ask you to try it. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second after this message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. Let's talk about categories for a second. There's the category of business where you raise millions of dollars, get on the cover of a magazine, and sell out for a billion. And then there's the freelancer who waits for the next gig. But in between the two is the bootstrapper. The bootstrapper has freedom. The bootstrapper works for her customers. The bootstrapper gets to determine what's going to happen next. It's about building something bigger than yourself without raising money from strangers. And I'm thrilled that the Bootstrappers Workshop is back. It's back because it works. Find the others, connect with the others, and learn the techniques necessary to build a bootstrapped business. I could talk about it all day. This is close to my heart. It's what I've been able to do with my career. But please, check out thebootstrappersworkshop.com for all the details. I hope to see you there. Thanks. The question that Newt Minow the beautifully named head of the FCC, now 93 years old, was asking, shortly after he took his job in 1961, was simple. Why is television so bad? Because television is really bad. Television is a shadow of what it could be. Television is the driver of our culture. Television gave us world peace because everyone around the world, for the first time ever, was seeing the same stuff. It established a Pax Americana by establishing that a dishwasher, two kids, a garage, a car, and peace were the sitcom life that were available to most people around the world, at least if they believed in it enough, and they were willing to embrace the Western capitalist ideal. But why is television so bad? There are a bunch of reasons for this, but before I go into them, I will point out that television is now better than it has ever been before, but mostly because of some outliers, some people who get the joke, some people who understand that we are living in a new golden age. But most of the industry, most of the people who make the stuff, talk about the stuff, and watch the stuff, they still don't understand the change that has happened and is happening. So where to begin? Well, we begin with radio. It's important to begin with radio because radio shared many of the dynamics of television of the 1960s. And that dynamic in the 30s and the 40s was, A, the receiver was sort of expensive and big. 
B, thanks to electromagnetic spectrum, which we've talked about earlier, there aren't that many slots for radio stations. This turned out to be a huge boon. If you were one of the eight major radio stations in a major city, you were going to make bank year after year after year. You got to keep your license forever, and you would make millions of dollars because there were only eight stations to listen to. That changes the way you think about programming. Because if there's eight radio stations, or when we move to the world of television, three TV networks, you begin each night's battle spotted one-third of the audience. One-third of the audience is yours. Don't blow it. That if you go out on a limb just a little bit and you win, you might get up to 50%. But if you take a huge risk and you lose, you'll end up in the basement, 10%, 12%. And so the mindset of radio for all those years and then television was inherently conservative, not politically conservative, but creatively conservative. The idea is to copy what came before, to offend as few people as possible, to puzzle no one, to challenge no one. Because Americans sitting in front of their big TVs did not want to be challenged. They did not want to feel dumb. And so we get Gilligan's Island and I Dream of Genie and Lost in Space. Gilligan's Island did exactly one thing that was clever or subversive. See if you can hear it. The weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage of the fearless crew, the middle would be lost. The middle would be lost. That's right. They named the boat in Gilligan's Island after Newt Minow, the guy who said that TV was a banal wasteland. My guess is that no one who worked on Gilligan's Island knew what the word banal even meant, or if they did, they didn't care. That the idea of these TV shows in the 60s was that if we're going to make the conceit of the show have anything abnormal about it, we need to explain the entire conceit every single week in the opening credits. We are going to explain the backstory of Bewitched or the Brady Bunch, because God forbid the audience should tune in and be mystified about what's going on on screen. Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. The kinfolk said, Jed, move away from there. A couple interesting exceptions. Mission Impossible, the original TV series, featured Greg Morris. He was the demolitions and technology expert. Greg Morris was black. Never once in the show, as far as I recall, did they point out that he was black. In 1960-something, it was a big deal to do this and to not make a big deal about it. Around the same time, Star Trek came along, another show that explained in detail what the show was about every time you watch it. A show so complicated, it got canceled twice because the programmers couldn't risk ending up with less than their third. But the plots of Star Trek, the plots of Star Trek challenged many people in the audience, which is one reason why we spend a lot of time talking about Star Trek and no time at all talking about 
the Beverly Hillbillies. So on the show notes, you can see a year-by-year chart of the ratings of the top 10 shows and what networks they were on over the course of 10 or 20 years. And what you will notice about this is that there's a lot of churn. Shows come and shows go. What you will notice about this is that almost all of the shows are completely forgettable. They are cookie cutter. They are banal. They are part of the wasteland. And then the third thing you'll notice is that once cable came along, the one, two, three network play of hegemony over how 100 million Americans were going to spend every single night started to fade. And it faded fast. It faded so that the number three show went from having 40 million people watching it down to 20 million people watching it. That's a huge shift. Try to imagine a store where half as many people start showing up. So when cable showed up, we went from three networks to a couple dozen. So the folks at ESPN got real smart. ESPN makes billions of dollars because they figured out that sports, sports is a show that writes itself, that sports is something they could corner the market on, that sports could become a profit center. And then back to what we learned from radio, Ted Turner did something bold. He created CNN. News was a loss leader on every single network. They did it because they had to. They did it to please the FCC. Ted Turner said, what if I could make news at a profit? And that led, as we've seen from talk radio, to a splintering of points of view. And so the editorializing of Fox, incorrectly called Fox News, is about finding 5% of the audience. That's all they need. Five million people watch Fox. Now, if you had said to a TV executive in 1969, we're going to make a show that 5 million people are going to watch, they would have booted you out of the office. But 5 million people is enough to change the culture. It's enough to change an election. Because, as Eli Pariser has pointed out in The Filter Bubble, collecting a group of people who agree about a point of view, a tribe, if you will, can be very profitable. Might not be good for the culture, but it can be profitable. And so what talk show hosts on radio have discovered is that it doesn't pay to be Terry Gross. It doesn't pay to be agnostic. That the way you build an audience is by standing for one point of view or another because people like being in their filter bubble. So as we head toward the present day, now we see where the conflict lies because it is possible to make cheap, aggressive, loud, news-based, opinion-based programming that will capture the attention and emotions of a few million people every night. And what about the rest of it? Well, what we know is that a network like HGTV has lost a huge percentage of its audience. Because how many shows about buying and renovating a house can you watch, actually? That YouTube, the infinite shelf of YouTube, means that if you want to learn how to renovate the tiles in your bathroom, you don't have to wait for HGTV to put on a show about it. You can just Google it, and there's the information you were looking for. That most of the people who program most of the networks have a mindset of, don't screw this up. 
And it took HBO with The Sopranos and all the shows that have come after that to say, no, 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 no. The only chance we have is to act like we're willing to screw it up. Game of Thrones, really? With what's going on? With how much it costs? With the complexity of creating it and building a fan base? But yes, Game of Thrones was a number one TV show on cable without a network because it went to the edges. Billions on Showtime, a show that never would have made it as unfiltered as it is onto network TV because it goes to an edge and it stays there. That what a few programmers, what a few creators have figured out is that the only shows worth making are shows that no one would have made back in the day. But most people in the industry, and yes, they call it the industry with a capital T and a capital I, most people in the industry like being in the industry. And what they know is if they don't get a green light, if they don't get approval, they don't get to do it again. And so the mindset is, let's look over our shoulder, let's look in the rearview mirror and try to guess what they're buying. Let's distinguish this from the book business. Now, in the TV business, there might be a few hundred shows made a year. That's more than ever before. Back in the old days, it was dozens, not hundreds. But in the book business, if you count self-publishing on the Kindle, there are more than a thousand books published every eight hours that even mainstream book publishers are publishing new books on a daily or hourly basis. What that means, that combined with the fact that only one person works on a typical book, not 30 or 300 or 3,000, but one person with a particular point of view. So what the book industry learned 500 years ago is that there are no mass market bestsellers, that there are no books that sell 100 million copies. Other than the Bible, the Guinness Book of World Records, and the sum total of the work of Earl Stanley Gardner or Agatha Christie, maybe James Patterson, nobody is in that category. Nobody. That what you have to do is make 50 Shades. 50 Shades could never have worked first as a TV show. Talk about banal. But also, it's not very well written. And also, people weren't proud to carry around a book that people felt was on that topic. But on the Kindle? On the Kindle, it found its audience, self-published. That audience wasn't everyone. It was almost no one, just a few million people. But just a few million people is enough. It's enough because you have attracted people who need you, who would miss you if you were gone. And now, television, expensive as it is to make, is becoming more like the book business because it represents a point of view, because it is not aiming to be benign, forgettable. It filled the slot. People didn't change the channel. We didn't get any complaints. Instead, television, the television we are thinking of, the television when we talk about the golden age, is not trying to be an updated version of Bewitched or Survivor or Shark Tank or Jeopardy. That this high concept nonsense of it's this plus this because the person who's going to green light it is too busy or too stupid to read more than a paragraph 
is being replaced by gutsy people who say, no, 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 no. I'm going to make something that stands for something, something that will be copied that isn't a copy. And we have a shot using this new medium, whether it's going to be on YouTube or the infinite long tail of Netflix, to create a different kind of culture going forward. Sure, it's going to be fractured. I miss the fact that I can't talk to people about the Batman TV episode I saw when I was seven years old, because we all saw it last night, that one of the things that Netflix did when they introduced binging was they put a little bit of a kibosh on water cooler culture. Everyone talking about the show they saw at the same time. So now we've exploded the number of channels. We've exploded the time grid. We've exploded the idea of genre. We've created filter bubbles. We've splintered everything into little corners. And every once in a while, a surprise shows up. And that surprise begins to rewire our culture. So Newt is still around. He's 93 years old. And I'm not sure what he would think about elements of the golden age of YouTube or Showtime or Netflix. But it's possible that new video literate people are going to show up with a point of view. Carriage is no longer out of their reach. Ideas that spread win. So the question is, what ideas will we make and what ideas will we spread? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. One last thing about Gilligan's Island. The professor, he could make a nuclear reactor out of a coconut. So how come he couldn't fix the damn boat? Just wondering. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a second with a question from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, one of my favorite parts of this show is hearing and answering questions from you. If you've got a question about this episode or a previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button. Hi, Seth. This is Joe from Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for sharing your insights every week about things that we all find fascinating. My question relates to your podcast episodes about merely shipping. With this, I know that merely shipping means getting our work out there and overcoming the lizard brain and our need for perfectionism. But my question is, if I release something like a post or video that isn't as good as the others, but at least I've shipped it, if someone comes across that, won't they judge my work based on this one thing and not give the rest a chance? And also, won't shipping a lot dilute the content which is truly impactful and can make a difference? Thanks so much for your work. 
I really appreciate your generosity and love the creative ideas each week. Thanks, Joanna. I hope you and yours are well. There's a fundamental misconception behind part of the question and then a juicy thing to riff on as well. So here we go. First of all, merely ship it does not mean ship junk. It does not mean ship stuff that you know to be inferior. It means ship it. Ship it without discussion or drama or anxiety because the discussion, the drama, and the anxiety do not increase the quality or the fit of what you are making. Merely ship it. Ship it because you have focused on the work and the person the work is for. That putting work into the world is the only way to find out what the world needs and wants from your work. That you can work on it on your own forever, but you will learn nothing about how the work collides with the outside world. So merely ship it begins with the idea that if we're going to be a professional at this, if we're going to be generous at this, it means we ship the work. Saturday Night Live does not go on because it's ready. It goes on because it's 1130. My blog doesn't come out tomorrow because it's perfect. It comes out tomorrow because it's tomorrow. That's the ritual. That's the rigor. That's the commitment that we are bringing to our work. But you bring up a second point. And the second point is, isn't there a cost to shipping work that doesn't fit? And of course there is. That when someone sees work that you do that isn't a match for them, they will judge you. They will judge you and they will make predictions about your next piece of work. But there's a few problems. Problem number one, if you don't ship your work at all, you won't get judged. You will be invisible. Is that better or worse? Well, being invisible is where we begin. So staying invisible doesn't really seem like you've accomplished very much. Number two, it's entirely possible, quite likely, that you have no idea about the difference between work that's good enough and work that isn't. Would you have shipped the Neil Young album where he was just a little bit out of tune on a couple songs? Would you have shipped the original Harry Potter book, the one that dozens of smart editors said would never sell? Nobody knows anything. It turns out that we know exactly how to make a good quality car. We know what Six Sigma is. We know how to make the tolerances perfect. We know how to make it so it accelerates quickly, so that the door shuts properly, so that the metal doesn't rust. But nobody knows anything about how to write a screenplay that is perfect. We know how to tell the ones that are fundamentally flawed. We know how to discard the ones that are lazy, the ones that are selfish. We know how to ignore the ones where the genre doesn't match what we are looking for. But when it comes to the spark of magic, we don't know. I am regularly surprised at the feedback I get on my blog. The ones where I have toiled for hours and I'm sure I've nailed it, I hear from no one. And the other ones, sometimes that took me four minutes to write, they seem to resonate with people. Nobody knows. But the way to get a hint, the way to begin to know, is to ship the work. And then the last part of this rant is where you decide to put the work matters. I think there's a difference between riffing with some tunes on Spotify and issuing your first full-length album. I think that there is a difference between a blog post and a book. I think that when you show up for money 
in front of a client, you probably shouldn't be trying out material for the very first time. That there's an expectation that comes with the wrapper that we put something in. But beyond that, we get hung up too often on our made-up idea of what is perfect. Perfect isn't what you think it is. Perfect is what the consumer thinks it is. And I'll finish with a reference to Hilma Af Klimt, who was a pioneering painter in the 1900s, early 1900s. She had a show at the Guggenheim. She painted more than 10,000 paintings over the course of her lifetime. And in her will, she instructed her nephew, who inherited her estate and almost went bankrupt honoring her wishes, to not show anyone her paintings until 20 years after she died. So here's this woman who painted 10,000 paintings. No one ever saw one. And then 20 years go by and no one saw one. And then finally people saw it. It seems to me that Hilma would have done even more important art and probably would have found more satisfaction in her work if she had shown people her paintings as she was making them. You don't need to be afraid to be judged, but it probably pays to be afraid to be ignored. That our opportunity when we make something is to make things better, but you can't make something better if you don't ship the work. Hi, Seth. It's Joe from Melbourne, Australia again. I asked the question about shipping subpar content and that diluting my other work, but I realize that's actually just my lizard brain talking and the part of me that needs reassurance. So I thought I'd come and answer my own question. The fact is I'm in it for the long term and the work that truly resonates will shine through anyway. Your blog and work reflects that. While there's plenty of it that resonates with me and others, there's also plenty that happened, but it doesn't matter because you've shipped it and the impactful work has shone through anyway. If you have more to add, I'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Here's to peace of mind. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.